Listener supported KTOO. Welcome to Juno Afternoon, broadcasting live from the homelands of the Aquan and on demand as podcast. It's Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024, and the snow continues to fall. It's Snowpocalypse 2024, but we are here. I'm your host, Boston Christopher Gunachi Shawa Salama, for joining the conversation. For safety reasons, all of our guests will join us via Zoom today. And on the show today, we'll chat with the creator of a new podcast, The Alaska Myth, which examines settler myths through a new lens. The Juno Symphony will warm us up this weekend with their concert, Brahms Begins. We'll chat with the Women Who Care Juno, a giving circle that supports Juno's nonprofits, and their next meeting is tomorrow. And we'll get a sneak peek at this week's fireside chat, On Thin Ice, all about Alaska fisheries in a changing climate. Those conversations, music, and more coming up this hour on Juno Afternoon. Support from Hanson Gress. Seeking curious people who like technology, network engineering, and customer support. Opportunities for those who thrive on problem solving. Details at hansongress.com slash careers. You're listening to Community Supported Juno Afternoon on KTOO 104.3 Juno, 91.7 Juno Ock Bay and online at KTOO.org. I'm your host, Boston Christopher. The Alaska Myth Podcast premiered last fall and takes a look at settler myths and asks tough questions and examines the history through a modern lens. Today, Kaylin Armstrong, executive producer and host of the podcast, joins us. But first, let's take a listen to the teaser of the show, which released late last summer summer. When I was a kid growing up in Alaska, there were certain mythologies just in the air. Alaska's flag may it mean to you. Like the last frontier. It was everywhere. On our license plates, in political speeches, in the state song we sang each morning in elementary school. And in the way I was conditioned to think about being Alaskan. The simple flag of the last frontier. You're not a real Alaskan because you've never lived in the bush, or you're not an Alaskan because you've never taken a piss in the Yukon or shot a bear. According to Amber Starks, at the heart of every settler project is a settler myth. In Alaska... The Last Frontier might be the most pervasive of these myths, but it's not the only one. The mythology of the gold rush being powered by the individual miner is really, I think, misplaced. In every settler fantasy, you have some component of making it on your own, surviving in the wilderness. In Alaska Native culture, to be like thrown off from your community, that is a punishment. These myths shape the way that so many settlers in Alaska see ourselves. But in the last couple years, I've spent a lot of time talking to people about the way they impact all Alaskans. My grandmother was adamant that she was Russian and she was ashamed to be Native. It's a frontier only if you have the premise that there are no laws, there are no civilized people, they have no rights. According to settler law and logic, indigenous people cannot continue to exist. They will inevitably disappear. I'm Caitlin Armstrong, and you're listening to The Alaska Myth. And I hope you'll come along with me this season as we explore these settler myths by looking at Alaska's history. We're going to talk about the gold rush and the origins of commercial fishing and the oil boom, and how the stories from these eras persist today. And we're going to ask, what are the consequences of envisioning our state through such a distorted lens? The Alaska Myth is coming this fall, and you can be the first to hear new updates by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can visit our website, www.thealaskamyth.com 
to receive exclusive updates through our newsletter. And joining me now is Caitlin Armstrong via Zoom. Gunnith Cheesh for being here, Caitlin. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Um, we're not having extreme weather here in Anchorage in the way that you are in Juneau. So I know usually uh, doing fl- just fine. Usually it's flip flopped, and uh, so yeah, we are having a massive uh, snowstorm over the last couple of weeks. It's a couple of different systems that have come through, and it is really. I mean, it's I don't know. I don't know how many feet of snow we have now, but it's a lot. Um, and uh, you know, jokingly, I was saying to you before we started that uh, you know, if you Google Caitlin Armstrong right now, right now, you might see see, see some. Something that says Caitlin Armstrong and something something APD. Well, this is not that Caitlin Armstrong who potentially committed a major crime in Costa Rica and is in Austin. This is Caitlin Armstrong who's in Anchorage and has created the Alaska Myth podcast. And uh, the website is thealaskamyth.com. Um, so, congrats on the podcast. Uh, let's talk about how it came about. What started this examination, and how did you decide to make it a podcast? podcast. Yeah. Well, audio is kind of my first love as far as a creative medium. I've always been a big podcast nerd and I've always wanted to produce a podcast. A few years ago, I was really interested in looking into Alaskan identity and, you know, put that in quotes. So I was wanting to explore um, some of the identities that were really prevalent, not just on reality TV, but also throughout my upbringing in Homer, Um, or the, you know, these glorifications of sourdoughs and pioneers. Uh, I'm sure we've, we've all heard these um, tropes kind of growing up in Alaska. And so I thought doing some research for that project, I linked up with my brother who has a history degree from the University of Alaska Southeast. And he recommended me uh, half a dozen books. They were all history and it kind of morphed into a historical project, really tracing um, both the, the roots of some of those identities, uh, but also how they reverberate into the present day. Gotcha. Yeah. It seems like you're taking an idea that people have either a nostalgic viewpoint or like you said, something you grew up with and, and through, let's, let's be fair through probably a very white lens, um, and, uh, creating that history or as, as the, as this place was quote unquote settled, um, you know, and so looking at that and really asking those questions about like, what, what are we actually talking about here and how did this, how did this happen? Um, and I know that you have, uh, three episodes so far. Um, The first episode came out in October. It was called The Problem with the Last Frontier. Um, And then the second one was called Kodiak Remembers. And this third one was about what you just mentioned, sourdough dreams, right? And sort of a little getting into a little bit of that and the gold rush and all that. Um, So what can you give us sort of a uh, just a quick overview of what those couple episodes have covered so far and what you're looking forward to in the future? I'm, I'm a, I feel like this is a monthly podcast. Yeah. 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 I'm aiming for two episodes monthly. Well, one documentary length episode monthly, and then I have some uh, bonus interviews coming out. Um, but as far as what the episodes have covered so far, um, the first one is exactly what it sounds like. It's a problem with the last frontier. And it's really um, unpacking what does it mean to call Alaska a last frontier Who does the frontier historically benefit? Uh, Who does it marginalize? Or what is violent about the process of creating a frontier? And how is that violence often written out of um, people's conceptions of Alaska as a last frontier? Because when you say that Alaska, the last frontier, it's often very nostalgic, very wide-eyed, and I think kind of naive in its... um, what it represents. Uh, so yeah, the, the podcast, basically every episode is looking at a different era of Alaska's colonial history this season. So that second episode, um, in Kodiak, it's, it's looking at the, the fur trade on Kodiak, what actually happened and then how that era has been represented on, on Kodiak in, in different ways and, and how the, I think the way in which that era has been remembered is is changing. 
Um, and then um, this recent episode uh, actually featured a lot of content from Southeast. It's kind of diving into the myth of lawlessness, um, but also looking at topics like Clinkett Law um, and uh, a company of Black soldiers that was sent to bring, quote unquote, law and order to these border towns around Southeast. Um, and so... For future episodes, I mean, um, we're we're really just following what might be represented as kind of a popular timeline of Alaska's history, that colonial timeline. So we'll be talking about fishing. Uh, we'll be talking about some uh, civil rights organizing that happened um, in different communities in Alaska um, and uh, oil, the, the oil boom as well. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, you have a, uh, they're each about 30 minutes. Yeah. So it, it's, a, it's a quick listen, right? With some good history. And would you call this form, is this sort of um, audio documentary or is it audio narrative? What would you, what would you, how do you define that in terms of what the style is? It as a documentary for sure. Um, so, you know, every episode consists of about four to six guest interviews. And then we just take clips from each of those interviews and try to put it into a narrative. And I think the goal is just making it as accessible and entertaining as possible. Um, you know, some of some of the topics that we cover. Alaska history and settler colonialism, they can be quite dense. And so we really just wanted to put it into a format that is, is digestible and um, hopefully interesting and hopefully something that people can learn from. That's awesome. Now, I know you didn't do this by yourself. Um, you have a nice team listed on the website at thealaskamyth.com. Um, so how did it come together? Once you had this idea and you wanted to pursue this, I know you talked to you talked to your brother and he gave you a bunch of history. How did you actually get to creating the content? Yeah, so uh, it's pretty labor intensive i i would say a lot of lot of hours spent but the flow has essentially so re, there's a, a bunch of research that goes into every episode um i primarily do all of the interviews and so identifying who are are the experts who are the voices that we want to feature in these episodes um and then i have a couple people who uh kind of advise me along the way and help um, shape the episode into something that is uh, narrative and not documentary style. So we work with Irissa Apantaku, who's a Chicago-based story editor, and Alice Connick Glenn from Coffee and Quack. Um, and then it gets uh, very heavily fact-checked um, at, at the end of the process, and then the episodes go out. And so it is... Um, yeah, it's it's definitely probably a few months to to make every episode from idea to end production. Wow, that is it's an amazing thing, right? It's a lot of work to make it sound like it does. It sounds so smooth. I've listened to it a little bit. It sounds really smooth and it's really easy to listen to. And the interviews are in depth and um, it's a it's a really nice podcast. Um, what is your hope for the future of the podcast? Are you hoping to sort of redefine the mythology or have people look at it a little bit differently? What, what's your hope? I think. My ultimate goal is to just spark a conversation uh, and to get people thinking about Alaska in terms that move beyond these settler myths that move beyond, like you said, these very kind of white uh, frontier ideas of what Alaska is. Um, and to just have people understand that Alaska is indigenous land. Um, and to be able to kind of look look at the state through new eyes, I guess, would be my my ultimate for people listening. I love that. And um, are you planning on doing uh, seasons? Like, do you have a certain number of episodes set for this, and then we'll be looking for it again next year, kind of thing? Give us the rundown on that. Yeah. So I have eight seasons mapped or eight episodes mapped out for this season. And then I have a lot of ideas for a second season. We'll see if it comes to fruition. Um, but the episodes will be running through this summer. 
and um, hopefully we'll have another season in the works probably next year. That's awesome. That's so cool. I love it. Um, it's the Alaska Myth Podcast. It's at thealaskamyth.com. You can sign up for a newsletter there and get all the information. And you can, of course, find um, the Alaska Myth in any of your podcast catchers of choice. It's on Spotify. It's on Apple. It's anywhere you want to download it. Um, and you can get those episodes. Um, there's three episodes, full episodes. And there is, as Caitlin mentioned, there's bonus content, some interviews that didn't make it into the full episode, which is also available in the in the podcast catcher um, kind of thing and it's it's really a pleasure to talk to you I hope this goes amazingly and I hope that lot, tons of people listen and that um, it keeps growing and growing and growing and we sort of redefine uh, the mythology and and at least look at it with new eyes and maybe have some new thoughts about it I think that's really great well thanks so much Boston it's been a pleasure speaking with you yeah absolutely um, thanks so much Caitlin all right, up next, Brahms Begins from the Juno Symphony is happening this weekend. We'll have a preview next on Juno Afternoon from KTOO. Support for Juno Afternoon comes from Heritage Coffee Roasting Company, providing Juno with locally roasted coffee for over 40 years, with cafes and drive through locations throughout Juno. More at heritagecoffee.com. This is Juno Afternoon from your listener-supported public media station, KTOO. I'm your host, Boston Christopher. Uh, it's snowing out there. It's kind of awesome in certain ways and not so awesome in other ways. We were listening to a little bit of Brahms Symphony Number no. 1 there. The Juno Symphony kicks off its 2024 season or the year of 2024 with Brahms Begins, a program highlighting that Brahms Symphony Number no. 1 and a full program of others, including Mozart and more. It all happens at JDHS Yada'a Kathle Auditorium this Saturday night and Sunday afternoon. For more information, you can go to junosymphony.org. Joining me now via Zoom is Christopher Cook, musical director for the Juno Symphony. Gunath Chishai Gudi, how are you? Wasaiti. And to you as well. It's great to be here. Okay, my first question, okay, is does the snow apocalypse make it difficult to conduct rehearsal? <laughs> well, you know, like every other uh person and organization, we are we are dealing with the situation, but uh, we have uh, already had some adventurous outings uh, in the snow, and so we are, are looking forward to more of them. <laughs> I mean, because the symphony is pretty big, right? And the people have to get their instruments there. I feel bad for like the tuba players and the bass, the stand-up bass players and those who have to lug those instruments around in this weather. Um, or maybe they can store them places, I guess. It depends on where you all rehearse and everything. But uh, And hopefully the parking lot will be cleared out by this weekend. Hopefully it's going to melt a little bit, but then some of that freezing rain is going to come in. It's going to be a little, a little interesting. But hopefully by this weekend, everything will be hunky dory and everybody can get out to the symphony um so christopher let's talk about it you're the musical director there at the juno symphony and this program continues the season um it's the first event of 2024 but what is what else is on the program what else are we going to be hearing and also um yeah what else are we going to be hearing well this is a really uh for me at least a really wonderful program uh of course it has the brahms symphony number one which is just one of those really extraordinary and magical pieces um, that is so, it, it, not only is it just central to the whole canon of orchestral music, it's just a, a truly phenomenal piece. Um, and we are also uh, playing some other phenomenal music. We are uh, performing the, the overture to Mozart's Magic Flute. And um, although that's a very short little piece, uh, Magic Flute was the final opera that Mozart wrote. And it is an extraordinary work as well and is very interesting for a lot of reasons um but it, given that he spent most of his life writing operas in italian because that's what you did back in the day he chose to write his final opera in german which uh was just you know it was 
kind of an affirmation of his own journey. Uh, we're playing a beautiful string piece by Edvard Grieg. Um, that he, a lot of people know Grieg from his piano concerto and the Pier Gint and some other pieces, but he actually wrote a lot of really wonderful small ensemble and string music. And it's a piece that it was based on a poem uh, and a song, and it's unlikely that most have heard it. Um, so it's a, a fitting, a, a piece from a Scandinavian composer in a very Scandinavian day, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> and then we're also really excited about uh, Blue Cathedral, which is a piece that many of our patrons probably have not heard. Uh, it is by the living composer Jennifer Higdon, and she is Without question, you know, one of the leading composers of our time, she won the Pulitzer Prize in 2010 for her violin concerto and is uh, performed quite widely around the world and is just also one of those people who makes herself available for educational opportunities and she appears at universities and, and residencies. So she's just a wonderful um just a wonderful figure in, in the music world, but also a fabulous composer. And this piece is um, very poignant because it, it's an earlier piece for her, but it was written in memorial of her brother who died uh, young. And uh, she was a flute player. He was a clarinet player. And those two instruments are featured throughout in the dialogue with each other. And it's a, a sort of dreamy and evocative, but also it has its moments of fire. And Jennifer Higdon's music is kind of a combination of familiar things and some very jazzy, uh, upbeat things as well. So I'm really looking forward to that one. Oh, that's cool. We'll hear a little bit of that at the end of the interview as well. Um, so that's that's awesome. So Mozart, Grieg, Higdon, and Brahms, how do you decide as the music director to put those pieces together? Well, I basically take a really deep breath and I hold it <laughs> until I pass out. And then whatever, you know, whatever comes to my mind when I regain, no, I'm just kidding. Um, really, you know, it's not, it's not an eldritch art, honestly. I mean, sometimes it's fun to put together programs based on thematic, you know, common thematic elements or historical um, connections and you know, and, and not that those aren't wonderful reasons, but, you know, I like to say, if you listen to a really good album of, of any kind of music, whether it be, you know, modern, you know, kind of modern top 40 or hip hop or classic rock or jazz or gospel or you name it, or, or, or honestly, um, a set of symphonies because the same logic has to do with the way composers put together their movements of a symphony. Basically, any good album is a combination of moods. So you don't want something that is just the same mood over and over again, the same tempo, the same loudness, the same thickness or thinness. Uh, you know, a good album, of, no matter what genre, has a variation. And so a lot of times I would say that orchestral programs are put together that way, so that the the musicians in the audience get a variation of intensity, of texture, of style, just like, you know, a great album that you might sit back and listen to at the end of the day. Yeah, that's awesome. And I wonder, too, do you sometimes think about, um, you know, changing it up for the musicians in the symphony, like um, challenging them in new ways, maybe playing stuff they haven't played before, things like that? Oh, for sure. Um you know, most musicians don't really want to play over and over again the things that they've played, especially, you know, if you are, a, you know, if you were, a, a, I don't know, a, a jazz guitarist, you know, you're every time you play a piece, you're you're basically reinventing it because you're improvising a large part of it. Um, but with an orchestral piece, I mean, you're really trying to play it a certain kind of way. And although one performance is different than another you know, there's a lot of value in being exposed to new material. So absolutely. I mean, we, like any ensemble, want to play things that not everybody has played. And, you know, we're lucky because there's so much just phenomenal music uh, that is kind of in the central database of, of the orchestral uh, collective consciousness. And so even without straying very far from that, you would have to spend several lifetimes doing new stuff. And then beyond that, we do have all kinds of new stuff too. So 
Yes. The answer is a very emphatic yes. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's a wonderful program. I love going from, you know, something ultra classical to also having living composers um, and exposing folks to new music that maybe they haven't heard before. Um, so I think that's that's really awesome. And it's great for the symphony to be continuing to challenge us in new ways as well as, you know, entertain us in other ways. So, and I know that the season continues after this, um, but this concert we're talking about is Brahms Begins. It's the kickoff of 2024 for the Juno Symphony. It's this Friday, no, sorry, this Saturday night and Sunday Sunday afternoon at JDHS Yada Kathle Auditorium. And of course, you can find out more uh, information, showtimes, and tickets at junosymphony.org. Um, we're going to close out with this Jennifer Higdon uh, piece called Blue Cathedral. Christopher, thanks so much for hopping on the Zoom. Stay safe out there on these roads. And uh, everyone, go to junosymphony.org, get your tickets for this weekend. Yes, thank you so much for having me. You stay safe out there too. Gunnath Cheesh. You're listening to Juno Afternoon from Studio 2K at KTOO, live in the snowpocalypse. I'm your host, Boston Christopher. The Juno chapter of 100 Women Who Care is 300 members strong, so we're blowing that 100 number out of the water. The organization is a giving circle that meets four times a year, with the next meeting happening tomorrow night via Zoom now, I think, but we'll get into that. Uh, Since it began in January of 2020, they have donated more than $475,000 thousand dollars to local nonprofits. Let's find out more about this wonderful organization. Uh, joining me now via Zoom are Julie Nielsen, Michelle Herbert, and Tonya Mosier. Can everybody hear me okay? And did I say everybody's name right? <laughs> yes. Yep. Absolutely. You got us. Awesome. Well, it's so nice to have you all here, Gunnith Cheesh, um, for coming on the program today and being flexible to hop on the Zoom. I hope you're all staying safe out there. That's all good. So first off, let's just give people the rundown of what this organization is, 100 Women Who Care. Who wants to take that? Yeah, sure. I'll take that. It's a giving circle, as you mentioned. And so we meet four times a year and we pick a local nonprofit that we decide to support. So at each meeting, we um, we end up each donating $100. And the way it works is this. Each member can uh, sponsor a nonprofit, a local nonprofit that they really care about. And then each of those eligible nonprofits goes into a hat. And it, at each meeting, we pick out three of those. And so of those three that we pick out, the sponsoring member can has five minutes at the meeting to tell us why we should support that local nonprofit. And then we can ask questions and then we vote. We vote and then that organization then receives $100 from all of the members. And so as you mentioned, we've got more than 300 now. So it's been about $30,000 that the local nonprofits have received. So it really, yes, it's a great way. Your $100 turns into so much more. And then the that's an amount that the local nonprofits can really do something with. So you all and, are basically donating about $120,000 a year to various different nonprofits. I'm sure that some come up again as you go through the process of figuring out which you're going to donate to. I love that though, that, that like you've got, you, you got five minutes to pitch, right? You got five minutes to yeah. explain why this particular time, this particular organization might need or might want, or is the one to support this time. And I, I think that's, a, that's a really, that's really cool that, but I, how do you do that when there's 300 people in the room? <laughs> Yeah. So this is, this is the thing is that we're hybrid. And so people can join by zoom. And we've also been having when we can in-person meetings too. And we've been having them lately at the red dog, which has been very convenient. We can go there. They've got a big screen. And so people can be in the room, talk to each other, get to meet each other. Cause it's a fabulous way to meet other women. And then up on the screen is the Zoom with everybody who's attending by Zoom. And then that meeting gets recorded. So if you miss the meeting, then you can always 
watch it and have time to make up your mind. We we typically have three or four days that members can think it over and vote. Gotcha. Okay. Michelle, um, how did you get involved and, and why? Just give us a rundown of what, what, is, it, what is it about the organization that, that makes you continue to be a member? Well, I just joined about a year ago. Um, and as you know, the, the organization, well, not organization, the volunteer group has been uh, going for about four years now. So I have, you know, Julie and Tanya my, are my friends and they happen to need a treasurer um, to kind of help um, facilitate the money aspect of it. And I'm an accountant. And so I volunteered to do that. So I, I kind of got uh, asked to do that, but I, uh, I, you know, I really enjoy um, supporting nonprofits in Juneau. And I love the idea that, you know, we have, you know, all these women that get together, we're a fun group of people. And what's easy is even if you can't join, even if you can't make a meeting, you know, you still contribute a hundred dollars, um, either through a check or through credit card, automatic payment. So it's really easy for our members to, to donate. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's, it's fun every quarter to get together and hear pitches of our nonprofits here in Juneau and all the great work that they're doing. And then what I love is I get to go, you know, after we select our, you know, our main, um, a nonprofit, for example, like the Southeast Food Bank, you know, we go to their facility, we present them a big check, you know, big, you know, a big photo check and, you know, giving it a nonprofit $30,000, uh, you know, like for them, they're going to build a new storage building and they just need that money to, as a matching fund. So we can really make a big impact for a nonprofit here in Juneau. And what's also nice is the other two nonprofits that make a pitch that our, our runner-ups, they also get about $3,000 also. So everybody's kind of coming out as a winner is what how I see it. Oh, that's that's so great. That's really nice. I mean, yeah, I can't imagine like a an organization gets a call and is like, hey, we've got a check for $30,000 for you. Can we come by? <laughs> I don't think anybody's going to turn that down. And Tanya, this is a national organization, right? This is like the local group of a sort of a national movement called a hundred women who care. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure who started it nationwide, but, um, our very own Iola Young was with some friends and they mentioned it and she was like, I got to bring this back to Juno. So she came back to Juno. Um, she reached out to her good friends, Marla Burke, Christine Crooks, and Jane Lindsay, and together the four of them kind of threw it out there on Facebook and said, let's, let's give this a shot. And this was in January of 2020, which is kind of important to note because um, we all showed up at the hangar and, and I basically just inserted my, my teacher voice in the whole thing and said, let me help. And I took over getting everybody signed up. They were overwhelmed with how many people showed up the first night um, at the hangar ballroom. And so that's how I got involved. And um, we had a goal of 100 women. We thought 100 women eventually. Well, it was over 100, I think 120. I just looked it up. We just talked about it. 120 after the first meeting and then instantly jumped up. We went to 200 quickly and and over 300 now. So, um, yeah. And so we we kind of ride the, the tail, you know, the coattails of the nationwide group um, and use their Zoom things. And, and they got us connected through Grapevine, which is a giving um, site that we can help us because we're just a pass through of money. So that's awesome. Yeah. And is that where people can find the local group is on face? Is there a Facebook group? I know you can give through the Grapevine link, which I will link on the show notes to this episode on our webpage, but it's a long link. Yeah. So, but is it, if someone wants to join the group or participate, um, what's the best way for them to find y'all? Yeah, if you type in 100 Women Who Care Juno, our Grapevine link pops up right away. Um, and that's probably the easiest way to find it is to is to hop on that way. Um, yeah. Okay. And Yeah, um, that, that will take you to uh, more information. It's got our email address on it. And it's also got a list of the organizations that we've supported. I see. Okay. So the, the history of the organization so that when you want to do your pitch, you may, did, did you find yes. that there's repeats? Do people repeat the ones or are you continuing to look at all the different nonprofits here in Juneau? Yeah, it's a little, it's a little bit of both, you know, by nature of drawing random out of the hat, 
we're going to get repeats, but we decided to really streamline that process and make it so that everybody gets a chance to pitch. And if you win, you have to sit out for a couple of years before you're eligible to go back in the pot. I see. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And now tomorrow's meeting, tomorrow's the first meeting of this year. You meet quarterly. Um, and we, you have made the decision tomorrow to make it fully Zoom, right? Mm-hmm. It's fully Zoom because yes. of the weather. <laughs> yeah, and I think yes. tomorrow is going to be even worse. I think the rain when the rain comes, that's when I'm going to get really. That's when I get a little. Um, uh, I don't know, trepidatious. I don't know what the right word is there, but when I get a little fearful of going outside because of the the rain and the mix of the snow, and then it freezes, and then oh man, we're in trouble the next couple of days. So everybody stay safe out there for sure. And the Zoom link is available at the Grapevine link, right? If you like, I said, like I think Tanya said, if you just Google or put into your search engine "hundred women who yeah. care Juno," you'll find the link, and uh, mm-hmm. and you'll get everything on there that you need to know. And it has the Zoom link for tomorrow. And and if somebody wants to join. Do they have to, to contact you in advance to be part of it? Yeah. 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 That's what so we're hoping. Could, yes. Yeah. You could you need to contact us first and the you can do that by grapevine. Okay. And, and then once the, you contact okay. us, then then we can get you the Zoom link. I but, see. And when okay. we do Yes. Yeah. And we do have a Facebook page also. So somebody could get a hold of somebody of, of me that way. Um, email and links are in the grapevine. So Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, what a wonderful organization. Is there, do you want to shout out any of the mo- most recent nonprofits that you've supported? Maybe the last couple of, 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 from last year or something. So people get an idea. I can do that. Sure. Uh, let's see. So our big ones is uh, 2023 were Zach Gordon, U Center, the Alaska Heat Smart, Southeast Food Bank and Meals on Wheels. And then our runner ups that, you know, got like $3,000 each. Black Awareness, Juno Family Birth Center, the UAS Writing Center, the, the Douglas Doran Fund, Trail Mix, Rainforest Yoga, Cancer Connection, and the Matthew Campbell Scholarship Foundation. Wow. That is, this is amazing work and it never ceases to amaze me how supportive Juno is with the amount of giving that people do to our nonprofits and all the different, from arts groups to the social services to, um, you know, the things that are really important, healthcare and things like that. Like, it just, it's amazing to me that it continues to, that Juno continues to shine in that way. And this organization is um, just another one of those examples. It's a great place for women to get together. And like you said, you get to meet people and you get to talk about the social services. And that is so cool. And the commitment, isn't that huge, right? It's four times a year, a few hundred bucks. And, uh, That's right. and, and you get to feel, you get to feel that, that warm feeling inside that you're supporting all these great organizations. Like it really shows the, the power of like grouping together and making a difference, right? Like grouping together and, and coming up with that large amount of money, um, and being able to help out an organization. So that's really good. So again, you can Google 100 women who care Juno, and that'll take you to grapevine.org, which is where you can find out more information. You can contact them in advance so that you become a member of this and then attend the meetings and become part of this amazing giving circle that is happening. So Julie, Michelle, Tanya, thanks so much for joining me today on Juno afternoon via zoom, stay safe out there. And, uh, and look forward to hearing more about the organization. Come back on the show anytime. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, Gunnath Cheesh. Okay, up next, we'll chat with Elizabeth Sidden about her fireside chat coming up this Friday on Thin Ice, Alaska Fisheries in a Changing Climate. This is Juno Afternoon, live from KTOO. Here's a savory moment. Step in to the savory moment. During a northern winter, when it seems like you spend all your free time shoveling snow, few things are better than loading up your slow cooker before you head to work, knowing dinner will be ready the minute you walk in the door, after you clear the front walk, again. But what about spring or summer when you want to spend your free time hiking in the woods or lounging on the deck? Slow cooking comes in handy then too. Cold slow cooking. Put away your crock pot and grab some limes from the fruit bowl. It's ceviche season. Ceviche originated in Peru, but it's also popular here in the north where fresh fish abounds. 
Instead of using heat as a cooking mechanism, ceviche employs low pH citrus juice to denature proteins and render your salmon, rockfish, shrimp, or even scallops deliciously safe for eating. Before you head to work, chop a pound of seafood into small pieces, about a third of an inch, to ensure they fully cook while you're grooming your sled dogs, tending your kelp farm, or selling knickknacks to tourists. Toss with red onion, bell and jalapeno peppers, and lots of cilantro, along with cumin, coriander, oregano, and salt. Add a puddle of fresh citrus juice to cover, then refrigerate. When you get home, inspect the ceviche to ensure the seafood is fully cooked. It should be opaque all the way through. Serve on a bed of chopped salad greens, drizzling on the flavorful marinating juices along with some olive oil as a dressing. Add a bag of tortilla chips for shoveling and you've got dinner. Find the full recipe for springtime ceviche at savorymoment.org. From the studios of KCAW in Sitka, Alaska, I'm Beth Short Rhodes. Whatever is on your dinner table tonight, may you savor the moment. listening to Community Supported Juno Afternoon on KTOO 104.3 Juno, 91.7 Juno Akbe and online at KTOO.org. I'm your host, Boston Christopher. Elizabeth, or Ebet Sidden, is a fisheries research biologist in the Ecosystem Modeling and Assessment Program at NOAA Fisheries at the Alaska Fisheries Science Center. She leads the Ecosystem Status Report for the Eastern Bering Sea, and this report is used by regional fisheries managers at the North Pacific Fishery Management Council to inform fishing quotas each year, that and so much more. And this Friday, January 26th at 7 p.m. at Mendenhall Glacier Visitor Center, she will give a fireside chat on the ice, Alaska's fisheries in a changing climate. Uh, Ebet joins me now via Zoom. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Boston. Of course. I um, hope you're staying safe in this uh, lovely weather that we're having. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's funny because we're, we're going to be talking a little bit about climate change. And uh, my partner and I were talking about this the other day. She and I were talking about like, you know, it seems like I was like, well, is, it, is there so much snow means like that it's not? we're not warming up, but then it's like, is it, or is it not? I don't know. So that's kind of interesting because, um, I know that we had a pretty big dump last year in terms of snow and, uh, but this year seems outrageous, these storms that are coming through right now. So, um, I don't know. That's not going to probably be in this talk. You're talking about fish and the climate and everything that's happening with the fisheries. Um, but tell us a little bit first, Ebet, about the work that you do at NOAA. Sure. Well, and I did anticipate that question might come up on Friday and I uh, have the great pleasure of interacting with both the Alaska state climatologist as well as the Washington state climatologist for the work that we do. So in communicating with them about current state of climate for fisheries for that update on Friday, I said, can you explain to me? It's El Nino. It's supposed to be warmer. I'm sure I'm going to get the question about all of this snow and and both sort of independently confirming it's just a unique uh, air mass. The way the polar vortex brought us a cold body of air for the first snow dump in the first half of January, that cold air is now sort of trapped in our inside passage. And now this warm air mass with all the precipitation has come on top of it. But the temperatures are cool enough to keep it on the side of snow, not rain. Uh, but they assured me, don't worry, it will warm up and this will become rain precipitation soon. So <laughs> it's I was reading the weather That's report earlier and it's predicted to start tomorrow at 9 a.m. that it's going to turn all to rain. We'll see. But and I was saying to our previous guests, that's when it gets a little dangerous out there. So people have to be really mindful because as the, the puddles are going to appear and then they're going to freeze and then, you know, so you have to be really careful out there these next couple of days and going into the weekend. It's going to be kind of a mess. So um, and there's all these events yep. that are coming up. So hopefully. Hopefully it clears up by the weekend so that 
people can get to the Mendenhall Glacier, but I know these are also, I think, put on Zoom. So if people uh, can't make it, I think they're on Zoom as well. Um, I don't think it does it. I don't think it's live necessarily, but I think they get they get archived in some way and put on Zoom. So, all right. So let's talk about this, this thing you're going to be doing on Friday. It's focusing on the changing climate and the effects that it's having. So what is it that we're looking at? What is it that you're going to be focusing on on Friday? Well, I work, as you said in the intro, uh, largely in the Eastern Bering Sea. I work as part of a team that lead what we call the ecosystem status reports. So there is a sort of counterpart to me that leads a report for the Aleutian Islands and one for the Gulf of Alaska. This That team and those reports are what provide all of the context to the fisheries managers about what's happening in all of Alaska's marine ecosystems when they go to make decisions about particular fish stocks in our waters. And so from that perspective, what I plan to talk about on Friday, I think we'll center on sea ice um, in the Bering Sea. It's a unique ecosystem in all of the US because it is so structured by seasonal sea ice. So to help folks sort of understand the role of sea ice, why it's important, why it's changing, and what that means for the fish in that ecosystem will be kind of the base. And then talk through a couple of examples of anomalous years, climate-wise, and then responses of crab and ground fish to those conditions. And then a bit about sort of, can we take what we know and, and sort of forecast or predict what we might see under future conditions. Right. Okay. So those, those, um, I mean, I'm curious about those off years you're talking about and what that, what the impact is of that. Can you speak a little bit about that? I'm curious about that. Yeah. So we had, um, the example I'll give on Friday, not to give away the whole thing, but for <laughs> folks who may not make it out there, uh, in 2018 and 19, the Bering Sea has, um, seasonal sea ice that comes down out of the Arctic over some amount of the shelf in the Bering Sea north of the Aleutians, and it varies year to year. But in 2018 and 19, there was essentially no sea ice that came down over the shelf. And that was a combination of, you know, it's not just that it's warm, but these winds that were anomalous in those two years that um, basically pushed the sea ice back out of the Bering Sea, back into the, sort of held it back in the Arctic. And when we saw those anomalies, it sort of gives us this um, sort of uh, anchors a point to be like, how does the system look when it's this extreme compared to this other variability, maybe it's high or low sea ice. And that, lack of sea ice was like this lack of a thermal curtain over the bearing. So fish and crab things could sort of expand northward over the shelf into the northern Bering Sea, north of um, Pribilofs, north of St. Lawrence, off of like Nome, Norton Sound, to a place where they wouldn't historically have been because that sea ice would be keeping the Northern Bering cooler. I see. So it, it, it does. So part of what's happening is that it does change the behavior, right? Of the, whichever animal we're talking about. Um, and, and it sort of, they're adapting, right? They're adapting to the climate change. I would assume that's what's happening. Well, I think that's sort of what they're attempting to do in moving. So if it's too warm, they're looking for cooler water. So you can go North, you can go deep. So they went north looking for that cooler water. So the sea ice, it changes where fish can go horizontally. Can you go north? Can you go south? But it also changes where things choose to be vertically in the water column. Are they shallower or are they deeper? So we look at both of those impacts. That I mean, it not only changes where things go, but it changes what food they find and what predators they are then susceptible. <laughs> right, right, right. And so, and then all this information, like I mentioned in the intro there, the ecosystem status report for the Eastern Bering Sea, these are all reports that are used to help people make decisions about what can be done or how much fishing can be done and quotas and all of that. Is that part of it? Yep, exactly. It's what we call ecosystem-based fisheries management. So we want to make sure if you're going to 
decide how many pollock could sustainably be removed from the Bering Sea next year. You also want to think about what pollock eat, who's eating pollock. We think about it like balancing all of the things in the system that need pollock. So fur seals need pollock. Uh, other seabirds, juvenile pollock are a big prey source for lots of things out there in the ecosystem. So our reports try to help give that context of how the ecosystem is doing um, in terms of how much food is out there. What are, is it a marine heat wave status? How are things doing? Give that context before the managers then make those individual quota decisions. Gotcha. So Ebet Siddons' talk is this Friday, January 26th at 7 p.m. It's a fireside chat at Mendenhall Glacier Visitor Center. It's called On the Ice, Alaska Fisheries in a, in a, Alaska Fisheries in a Changing Climate. And I do want to mention that these ecosystem status reports are available for anyone to view. You can go to fishes.noaa and oaa.gov and you can search for these reports on there and you'll be able to download them. They are very comprehensive. They are sometimes two, three hundred pages, but there's also a really fun video on there. I will link to that video on the show notes for uh, this episode today, um, which sort of explains a little bit about what goes on out there. So Ebet, thanks so much for joining us today and uh, break a leg on your fireside chat. Really don't break a leg on the ice. Break a leg is an old theater term. I happen to use it all the time. I'm sorry. But in these climates, it's not really the best thing to say. So I'm sorry for that. Um, But anyway, I really appreciate you coming on today, being flexible to come on via the Zoom and uh, all the best this Friday on the talk. Again, it's Friday, January 26th at 7 p.m., the fireside chat with Ebet Sidden. Thanks so much. Good cheese for being here today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Hope to see folks on Friday. We'll do it for today's Juno Afternoon. Please stay safe out there. On tomorrow's show, a preview of Platypus Con, the upcoming gaming convention. Death with Dessert is back, raising more money. And Julie Peters will be here with a deeper dive on Manifesting 101. Juno Afternoon airs Tuesday through Friday at 3 p.m. right here on KTOO Juno 104.3 and KAUK Juno Akbe 91.7. Hello out the road. Find the show online at ktoo.org slash Juno Afternoon, where you can listen to episodes, subscribe to the podcast, offer feedback, give ideas, or find out how to be a guest on the show. Our theme music is by Indian Agent. Juno Afternoon is a project of the KTOO Arts and Culture team. I'm Boston Christopher, producer and host of the program, with help today from Aaron Tripp. Thanks, and have a warm and safe Juno evening. Juno Afternoon.